to see you this morning, and I invite you now to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, and we'll begin uh, this morning uh, in Matthew chapter 5, reading verses 1 through 12, and then we will focus this morning on verse 8. Uh, We're continuing our series in the Beatitudes, uh, which serves as the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount spans from Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 7, but we're focusing on these first 12 verses Uh, which is well known as the Beatitudes, and working through each one now individually. Uh, This morning we'll be focusing on verse 8, but uh, I'll begin reading for us in verse 1. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you uh, where you're seated, you'll find our passage on page 810, page 810. This is God's Word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, the disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. Well, although religion is on decline in our society as a whole, Uh, overall our society still views religion in a positive light. So sometimes folks will ask, are you a religious person? Are you a religious person? Meaning, do you follow a particular religion? Do you attend services for a particular religion? Do you observe their religious practices and attempt to keep their code of conduct? And if you say, yes, I'm a religious person, then Generally speaking, most of the time, I think, you'll get a positive response. Well, that's great. I'm glad that you found something that makes you happy and satisfied. Oftentimes, you'll get some kind of response like that. And so, generally speaking, although religion is on decline in our society, there's still a positive kind of response to religion as a whole. And many people assume that Jesus came to promote religion. In other words, that Jesus came to encourage us to be more religious. But in actuality, when we read the gospel accounts, we learn that Jesus often warns us of the dangers of religion. In fact, there is perhaps no group of people that Jesus criticizes more than the religious. You see, in Jesus' day, Judaism emphasized ritual purity through the observance of ceremonial laws, through conformity to external behavior, And so, to be a good religious person, one had to faithfully observe rituals and the the rituals and ceremonies of Judaism and to conform to an outward standard of behavior. They had to, we might say, attend church, pay their tithe, keep scrupulous food laws, and maintain a standard of ritual cleanliness. But Jesus challenged the religion of his day. Rather than promoting ritual and ceremonial laws, 
Jesus stressed the importance of inward purity. And rather than focusing on conformity to outward behavior, Jesus emphasized inward, internal transformation. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 to 28, Jesus says this, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence.'" You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the outside may also be clean. And what we see in the Sermon on the Mount, this section of Scripture that we're looking at uh, during this series, is that this is a theme that runs all through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is not interested ultimately in whether we are religious or not. Jesus is not first and foremost interested in our outward observance of ritual and ceremonial laws. Jesus is not interested in our conformity to outward standards of behavior. Rather, Jesus, and we see this all through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is after our hearts. It reminds me of the words of Samuel the prophet in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, where Samuel says, "...the Lord sees not as man sees." Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I remember hearing that passage of Scripture when I was a young man and how deeply it struck me as Samuel was making reference to young David. And Samuel was saying that God does not look at outward appearance in terms of whether he's going to choose this man to be a king or this man to be a king, but God looks at the heart and he saw David who was a man after God's own heart. And so he placed his hand on him and chose him and anointed him to be king of Israel. And I remember as a young man just so desiring that by God's grace I would be a man like David, a man after God's own heart. In many ways, this is Jesus' religion. This is Jesus' message in a nutshell. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And Jesus makes it so very clear that He is after our hearts. So Jesus' promise here in this beatitude is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. As we look at this beatitude this morning, I want us to look at four points in particular. First, we will consider the heart. Secondly, we'll consider a bad heart. Third, we'll consider a pure heart. And then fourth, we'll consider the promise to see God. First, the heart. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Now, of course, we know that the heart is a physical organ that pumps blood through our bodies to keep us alive. And in English, we use the word heart oftentimes to refer to our emotions. So one might say to someone else, I love you with all my heart. And there's a heavy emphasis on our emotions when we use that word. But in the Bible, the heart refers to more than just the emotions. The word in Greek for heart is cardia. And of course, it can be used as a reference to the physical organ of the heart. But more significantly, it's used to speak of a person as a whole. So listen to this definition of cardia taken from one of the most widely used and respected New Testament Greek dictionaries. Here, cardia is defined as, quote, the center and source of the inner life, with its thinking, feeling, and volition. 
Listen to that definition again of cardia, heart. Quote, the center and source of the inner life with its thinking, feeling, and volition. So you see there that the heart in the New Testament is referencing far more than just our emotions. It's speaking of our thinking, of our feeling, and also of our volition, our will, the choices that we make. Therefore, it is referred to as the center and the source of our inner life. And so, as one commentator notes, the surprising thing about Jesus' teaching is that in Jesus' day, the religious leaders celebrated things like the observance of the Sabbath and the keeping of the cleanliness code and the dietary laws. And although Jesus does not negate all of those things, in many ways, Jesus bypasses them and he goes straight for our hearts. He goes straight for the center of who we are, our thinking, our feeling, our will, our choices. He heads, we could say it this way, straight for the control room. Because that's what the heart is in our lives. It is the moral and spiritual control room of our lives. Everything we think, everything we say, everything we feel can be traced back to the control center of our lives, namely our hearts. In this way, the heart represents the core of our person. And Jesus is after our hearts because, understand the implication, Jesus wants all of us. He's after all of us. So, this is the heart. Secondly, I want us to consider a bad heart. A bad heart. So we define heart as it's used in the New Testament. But if the heart is the control center of our lives, if the heart is the core of the human personality, what does the Bible say about the nature of the heart? Well, the first occurrence of the word heart being used in reference to uh, man's control center, the core, the center of our being, is actually found in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. And I'll warn you that it's not very encouraging. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, we read these words. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And of course, after that assessment and pronouncement is made, the Lord sends a flood that destroys all of mankind except for Noah and his family. And then we go further along in the Old Testament and we read in Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 these words. Jeremiah the prophet says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So here we have the testimony of Moses from Genesis chapter 6. We have the testimony of Jeremiah from Jeremiah chapter 17. But what about Jesus? What does Jesus have to say about the human heart? Well, I won't cite every time that Jesus uses the word heart in the Gospel of Matthew, but I do want to cite a number of times where Jesus uses the word heart in order to demonstrate that Jesus' assessment of the natural heart falls right in line with Moses and Jeremiah. Jesus also affirms that the heart is naturally sinful and wicked. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, we read these words, You have heard it said, this is Jesus speaking, You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Or Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. You brood of vipers. This is Jesus speaking to the religious leaders. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or Matthew chapter 15, verse 8. Jesus says, he's citing an Old Testament passage of Scripture here, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Or Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 to 20, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Or Matthew chapter 19, verse 8, Jesus said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Now here's what's particularly noteworthy as we read all of these accounts in which Jesus assesses the human heart. What we see here is that it is in the most unlikely of places, namely the human heart, which is naturally predisposed towards evil, that Jesus expects purity. That the citizens of the kingdom of heaven will be marked by purity. Jesus says that our hearts are defective, bent, inclined towards evil. But Jesus desires for us to have pure hearts. And so that leads us to our third point. A pure heart. So we've considered the heart, what it is, the center, the core of our personality and being, the control center. We've considered that our hearts are bad, naturally, predisposed towards evil. But then third, we want to consider a pure heart. So Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Now, when Jesus says that, what does he mean when he says pure in heart? I think this is extremely helpful in terms of understanding what Jesus means here, it becomes evident that the Old Testament basis or background for what Jesus is saying here is found in Psalm 24. Psalm 24. So if you'll turn there, and if you're using one of the black Bibles, you'll find it on page 458. 458. Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6. And this is a psalm of David. And David says in verse 3 of Psalm 24, Psalm 24 verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Now notice here in these verses that David is interested in who is able to access, who is able to be in the presence of, who is able to see the Lord. Okay, so that's that's the concern of our beatitude as well, right? To see God. Notice what David says in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? Who has access to God? Who can come into His presence? And then he returns to this theme in verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, who want to see God. 
This is David's great concern. Who can see God? Who can have access to Him? Who can be in His presence? And what is his answer? Look at verse 4. He answers the question in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And then in verse 4, the next statement there, David goes on to define what it means to have clean hands and a pure heart. Look there in verse 4. Just keep reading. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, here it is, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, which I take and I believe most commentators take as idolatry. You don't lift your soul up to false gods and does not swear deceitfully. In other words, they're not dishonest. So notice how David is defining here the pure in heart. It is those who have singular devotion, singular affection. They're not worshiping God and trusting in idols. No, they worship God and God alone. They're not professing the truth and at the same time lying and deceiving others. No, they have a singular devotion, a singular affection, a singular commitment to God and to His truth. That's what it means to be pure in heart. Now, this is the Old Testament background, I believe, for Jesus' beatitude here in Matthew chapter 5. But if there is a New Testament parallel, it is found in James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And turn there. If you're using one of the black Bibles, you'll find it on page 1012. 1012, 1012. So James chapter 4, verses 4 through 8, and I'm going to read for us uh, verse 4 and then read for us verse 8. James chapter 4 and uh, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then skip down to verse 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and pure, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now notice there, in Psalm 24, who is it that can ascend the hill of the Lord who has clean hands and a pure heart? And here James says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Right? So we see another parallel there between Psalm 24 and James 4. But notice here that James is instructing them to purify their hearts. And why is he instructing them to purify their hearts in verse 8? Because he goes on to say they are double-minded. Of course, that's exactly what David is speaking of in Psalm 24. And so James is saying here, don't be double-minded. Don't be duplicitous. Be pure in heart. Worship God and God alone. Tell the truth and reject falsehood, just like David was speaking of in Psalm 24. And notice here in James how James defines double-mindedness. It's actually found in verse 4. He says there in verse 4, this is what double-mindedness is. Uh, he says, you adulterous people. That's what double-mindedness is. He uses the analogy of adultery. It's a man who has a spouse but has a mistress on the side. That's double-mindedness. And then he relates that to a Christian in his relationship to the world, right? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
So, so you can't have it both ways. You can't be a friend of God and a friend to the world. That's double-mindedness. Therefore, purify your heart so that your mind is singular in its affection and devotion to God. Now, as we take Psalm 24 and we take James 4 and we think about what does it mean to be pure in heart, this has led commentators to define pure in heart in these ways. One commentator defines pure in heart as, quote, unmixed devotion. Soran Kierkegaard, the famous philosopher, defines purity of heart as commitment to will one thing. That's, 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 a, that, that's a really good definition, to will one thing. I'm about one thing. Sinclair Ferguson, Christian pastor and theologian, defines pure in heart this way, quote, to be pure in heart is to be uncompromisingly dedicated to Christ. Or John Stott, another Christian pastor and theologian, says it this way, quote, so to be pure in heart, or, or so the pure in heart, are those whose whole life public and private, is transparent before God and others. Their very heart, including their thoughts and motives, is pure, unmixed, without anything devious, underhanded, or sordid. Hypocrisy and deceit are repugnant to them. They are without deceit. End of quote. And so this is what Jesus is getting at when He speaks of what it means to be pure in heart. It means to be undivided, singular, and our devotion to God. Now, of course the great dilemma is, we considered the heart and what it is, we've considered a bad heart that our hearts are naturally inclined to evil, and then a pure heart which is singularly devoted to God. The great dilemma is, how does the bad heart become a pure heart? If our hearts are naturally divided, if they're mixed in their affections, If they're unfaithful in their allegiances, how can we have a pure heart, an undivided heart toward the Lord? I want to give you four words that I believe will help us in pursuing a pure heart and just say a brief, um, make a brief comment about each. The first word is this, trust, trust. So one of the things we have to recognize is that a pure heart is not finally an achievement that we attain, but a gift that we are given. And only God can give us a pure heart. This, in fact, is the promise of the new covenant. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 26, the prophet Ezekiel says, actually this is the Lord speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you, And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And listen, my friends, Jesus, what the Bible teaches us is that Jesus died on the cross, and He was raised from the dead in order to make this new covenant promise a reality. That through faith in Jesus and His atoning death on the cross, we are washed We are cleansed of our sin, and we are given new hearts. We're given a new spirit that is predisposed to seek the Lord and follow the Lord and give ourselves in devotion to Him. I heard one Christian pastor say that a pure heart is not a perfect heart, but it is an honest heart. 
And that's where we must start if we are to be pure in heart. We must be honest with the fact that we are naturally inclined to sin, that our hearts are not pure. And confess that to the Lord and trust in Christ and His atoning death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins and for the promise of a new heart that is inclined and longs to follow Jesus. So the first word is trust. The second word is pray. Pray. Listen to how the psalmist prays. In Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Or Psalm 51, verses 6 and 10, David prays, Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And so as we trust the Lord to forgive us of our sins and to give us a new heart, then as we're given a new heart, we must pray daily, consistently, that the Lord would purify our hearts, that He would cleanse our hearts, that He would set our hearts aside to be devoted unto Him. So we must trust, we must pray. The third word is this, guard, guard. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, or it could be translated, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. So remember that the heart is the center of our being and our personality. It's the control center of our lives. And the disposition, what the author of Proverbs is saying here, is that the disposition of our heart will determine the spiritual and moral course of our lives. So from our heart will either flow springs of life that are blessing to you and to others, or from our hearts will will flow springs of death that contaminate and poison you and others. And so the author of Proverbs says, guard it, keep it, protect it. Right now I know that most of us are tuned into the war between Russia and the Ukraine, And in any war, there are certain cities that you must guard, you must defend if you are to expect to be victorious. Of course, right now, there I haven't checked the news this morning. I know uh, yesterday there were attacks on Kiev, and uh, I've heard multiple reports saying that Kiev is kind of the strategic battle point, center of the war, because it's the capital of the Ukraine. And the idea is that if the Russians can take Kiev, then they probably have a good chance of winning the war as a whole, but if they... Ukrainians are able to defend Kiev, then it would be very difficult for the Russians to be victorious. And of course, we are engaged in a spiritual battle. And what the Scriptures tell us is that the strategic battle point in this war that we are engaged in against Satan is our hearts. If Satan can capture your heart, then you're done, right? And so, the idea here that the Proverbs, the author of Proverbs is saying, or, or getting at, and, and the other authors of Scripture that we see is that, that we must guard it, we must defend it, we must protect it, as it relates to the influences and temptations of this sinful world. The Bible would tell us, dig a moat around your heart, build a wall and encircle it. Surround it with barbed wire and air defense artillery. Position drones who are on alert 
for potential attacks. Station soldiers with high-powered artillery to defend the perimeter. You must be on alert. You must guard. You must protect your heart. So we are to trust. We are to pray. We are to guard. And then fourth, we are to purify. This takes us back to James chapter 4. And in James chapter 4, verse 8, we read these words, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Here, James says we are to purify our hearts. And I think there's, there's two actions that are absolutely necessary if we are to purify our hearts. One is repentance, and the other is mortification. Repentance means to turn. It's actually a military term. It's one like a commanding officer would use today when he says about face. It means we're going one direction, and then if the officer says about face, you turn and you go in the other direction. That's what repentance means. It means we're going in our direction. We're pursuing our way and our sin, but when we're called to repent, we turn, and we turn to the Lord. We turn away from sin, and we turn to God. And then mortification is just a a fancy word for kill. And actually, this word comes from Romans chapter 8, verse 13, where the Apostle Paul says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, you mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. John Owen, a Christian pastor, famously said, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And so if we are to purify our hearts, we must be committed to these two actions in our Christian lives. Repentance and mortification, turning from our sin and turning to God and putting sin to death in our lives so that we might live by the Spirit. So how do we pursue a pure heart? We trust, we pray, we guard, and we purify. Now, fourth and final point, the promise to see God. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This reminds us actually of a previous beatitude. If you just look up a few verses, you'll see there, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And what does it mean to be satisfied? I think it's fair to say to be satisfied means to see God, to know Him, to see Him for who He truly is is. And of course, this promise to see God, like so many of the other Beatitudes, has both a present reality and a future reality, a present and future dynamic. So we recognize that ultimately this promise to see God will be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth, but as a present reality as well. The more our hearts are set on God, the more our hearts are devoted to God, the more then we will see Him for who He truly is. The more we will know Him, the more we will experience Him in our daily lives. This is illustrated really well in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 6, we have the account of the feeding of the 5,000. And so you, many of you know the story. There's this huge crowd, and they're all hungry, and they've been hearing Jesus teach. And Jesus says to His disciples, He wants them to feed the crowd, but there's no food. And Jesus says, we'll see what we do have. And they come back and they say, well, there's five loaves and two fish, but that's not nearly enough to feed this enormous crowd. 
And Jesus prays over the food, the little bit that they have, and they begin passing it out, and the Lord miraculously multiplies the food, and everyone is, is, is able to eat and is satisfied, and there's actually leftovers. And this happens in Mark chapter 6. We just go one chapter later, and Jesus and his disciples find themselves in a situation where there's 4,000 people, so not quite as many. They do not have enough food, and Jesus says to the disciples he wants them to feed the crowds, and the disciples are perplexed again. How in the world are we going to feed all these people? Right? And so there's this sense in which they're not getting it. Jesus has already fed 5,000. This is just 4,000. What's the big deal, right? But they don't get it. But God, and his, Jesus, and His grace and His mercy works and feeds the 4,000. And they see Jesus miraculously provide again. And then we come into Mark chapter 8. And in Mark chapter 8, there's this account of Jesus healing a blind man in Bethsaida. And when He heals the blind man, He actually leads him by the hand out of the city. And then He puts His hands on His eyes. And He asks the man to open his eyes. And the man opens his eyes and he says, do you see? And the man says, yes, I see, but I see people walking and I can't see them clearly. They look like trees. Jesus says, okay. And he touches his eyes again. And he says, open your eyes. Can you see? And the man opens his eyes and he can see clearly, perfectly. Now, that is a perplexing account because we wonder, well, Jesus can speak and calm the sea. He can touch someone and heal them immediately. What was it about this blind man that it took stages to heal him? Is this because this was a particularly difficult case of blindness and Jesus had to put more effort into it? No, the healing of the blind man is intended to be an image, a symbol of our discipleship in our Christian lives. Just as the disciples are slowly beginning to get it, they don't see it clearly, but it's coming more and more into focus. That's how Jesus works in our lives as disciples as Christians, as citizens of the kingdom. In fact, right after that account where Jesus heals the blind man, in many ways this is the pinnacle of the gospel of Mark before Jesus' death and crucifixion. Right after that, we have, G we have Peter make the good confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what Jesus is picturing in that healing of the blind man in stages is that the disciples, they don't get it, but they're going to get it. I'm going to reveal more and more to them, and as they go further and further along, they'll see more and more and more of who I am. And what a beautiful picture of the Christian life. We don't get it all at first, but as we walk with God, and as our hearts are more and more set on Him and devoted to Him and given to Him, and we're singularly focused on Him, God allows us to see more and more of who He is clearly to know Him more and more fully, to experience Him more and more deeply. So the pure in heart in this life will see more and more and more of God until one day we will see Him as He truly is. I don't know if you've seen those videos online where Family and friends will purchase special glasses for their loved ones who are colorblind. I, uh, I can't watch those videos without tearing up. Not long ago, I remember seeing a video of an older gentleman. He's probably in his 60s, and I assume he'd been colorblind all his life. And it was his birthday, and his family 
bought him a pair of those special glasses, brought them out on the porch, the deck of their house, bought him those special glasses. He opened them up. He wasn't sure what they were at first, and they told him to put the glasses on. And so he puts them on, and he looks up, and he sees the blue in the sky, and he sees the green on the trees. And they had bought him some balloons for his birthday, and he's able to see and discern the different colors of the balloons. He looks at his family, and I assume he's able to see the colors on their clothes and the color of their eyes, and he literally, grown man, begins to stagger. He has to catch himself before he falls down. He's just so overwhelmed with the beauty of it all, of what he has longed to see all his life, and now it's a reality. And what a small glimpse of what is to come. When we, for the first time, behold the Lord face to face. And can you imagine, we will stagger, right? We will be overcome with awe and glory and beauty and wonder. And this is the promise for all those who are pure in heart. We shall, by the grace of God, we shall see him as he truly is. Let's pray. Father, we praise you because you are holy and righteous and just and pure. And Father, we thank you that although our hearts are sinful and so easily distracted and wicked, that you have come to redeem us, to give us pure hearts so that we might know you and so that we might see you for who you are. Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning who may need a new heart. Lord, I pray that by your grace, you would lead each of us to repentance and faith in Christ. Lord, we thank you for the promise of the gospel that if we turn from our sins and trust in the Lord Jesus, that you will cleanse us and wash us, that you will grant us a new heart so that we might know and love and follow you. And then, Father, for those of us who are disciples of Jesus, who are citizens of your kingdom, Lord, we confess that we need daily cleansing, purifying, and we pray that you would do that work in our lives even now. May we trust and pray and guard and keep, and may we purify our hearts so that we might know you and see you more and more in this life and ultimately in the life to come. Take this word and apply it to our lives, we pray. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it.